0: Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. into his non-renewable six-year presidential term, Mexico's president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, maintains an approval rating of more than 60%. He came to power with an agenda to transform the country. And thus far, he's not guiding the country forward towards the 21st century, but rather, he's taking it back to an era in which the president was all-powerful the state was the main rector of the economy, and energy protectionism and anti-Americanism were key parts of Mexican sovereignty. To give us a report card of AMLO's first three years in office and their analysis as to what can we expect for the second half of his administration, that it is my pleasure to welcome Luis Rubio, a political scientist and chairman of Mexico Evalua, Luis de la Calle, a renowned economist and CEO of CMM, Lourdes Melgar, former Undersecretary of Energy and an MIT scholar, Jorge Tello Peón, an intelligence and security expert, and Julián Ventura, a diplomat and former Deputy Secretary of Foreign Affairs. Welcome, everyone. It is my true pleasure to have you all five on the show today. Let us start with the political context and move from there to discuss the economy, the energy sector, security, and then finalize with how are all of these areas impacting the United States and also the bilateral relationship. Luis Rubio, it is a pleasure to be with you today. As someone who has observed and analyzed Mexico for decades, how is President Andrés Manuel López Obrador different from the Mexican presidents of the last three decades? What has happened in the first half of his administration?
1: Thanks, Mariana. I think that the short answer is that the political overtook and diminished any semblance of a law-abiding government and society. There was sort of a takeover of every realm of society. The president aims to restore the era that, in his mind, was the most successful of Mexico's modern history, the 1970s, a time in which the Mexican government was all-powerful, both because it had a structure of political control that was very effective, but also because recently discovered oil resources then conferred upon the government enormous power and funding that appeared to make it possible for the president to rule at will with no restrictions. So the president glosses over the fact that such apparent success then ended up bankrupting the government and forcing a radical change in both economic model that would have to be followed, as well as in the role of the government in society. The following decades after the 1982 collapse were a time of institutional buildup in anchoring the law as the basic rule of interaction and to attract investment. And NAFTA and the creation of a series of regulatory bodies a strengthened the independent Supreme Court and the Central Bank were all conceived as foundations to establishing the rule of law. Unfortunately, President López Obrador demonstrated that those efforts were not very successful for he has been able to undermine, destroy, neutralize or eliminate any restrictions or checks on his power. He has largely succeeded in recreating the old all-powerful presidency. And the frailty of of those institutions is certainly not the president's fault, because that one stems from his several predecessors' unwillingness to bring in the citizenry into the development of, of the country. A very technocratic view that explains to a large extent, in my view, where Mexico is today and why those institutions lacked legitimacy among the populace. As I see it, the problem is that the president's success in amassing power does not translate into the development of the country into growth, jobs, or higher incomes. That will, as I see it, prove to be the futility of his efforts, but the damage will have been enormous. Furthermore, there are two paradoxes in what he has done. The first is that the more control he garners, the less power he can actually exercise, for no power is enough to force businesses to invest, people to save, or the citizenry to be pleased with things. The second, and crucial, is that Mexico has become an extremely complex society in every realm, economic, social, political, international, and complexity can only be managed with rules that are well established and respected, institutions that are credible, as citizens that are ready and willing to defend their rights. The question, as I see it for the future, is whether the circumstances will force the people to act. I'm not sure that that will happen.
0: Luis, In the next half of his administration, what are your biggest concerns?
1: Well, I think that one has to understand that the president, he's neither evil nor nor irrational. He's a power-driven individual who is acting to advance his project and to attempt to make it permanent. And of course, all Mexican presidents aim to accomplish that permanence, only to find out that the only real limit to their power is the six-year term. Hence, when you ask what's likely to happen over the next three years, the answer, I think, is quite clear. He will push forth ever more forcefully, aiming to consecrate himself as a myth. And the real question is whether the people will follow him in this enterprise. So far, he's extraordinarily popular despite his meager accomplishments. Some of that support is more faith-based than rational, but so far it has held. Odds are, in my view, that he will continue in his attempt to control the remaining institutions like the central bank, the Supreme Court, the electoral authority, INE, with little opposition that truly matters. So I can see two scenarios. One is that factors outside his control, like the U.S. economy, help him maintain strong enough economic growth to attain his goal. The other is that Mexico's economy and security situation go south, undermining him like it happened to most of his predecessors. Independent of the economy, the political cycle advances relentlessly and the president's ability to shape and control events is already beginning to wane. This is the period when both his accomplishments or lack thereof, will become paramount, as will other factors starting with aspiring successors and their agendas. Whatever the outcome, a lot rides on this for the U.S. A successful Mexico would also be a stable neighbor, thus a larger importer of American goods, a strong complement to American production and a politically viable nation. That would be the ideal scenario for both nations. Odds are, however, that the reality proves to be closer to the alternative scenario. A more unstable neighbor, with fewer and weaker sources of economic growth, violence, and an angry citizenry feeling betrayed by yet another failed president. Such a scenario would entail a much more complex border in every regard. Having said that, the real issue for the U.S. is how to address the inevitable cleanup that would have to follow. Back in the 1980s, when Mexico faced a similar dire scenario, The U.S. proved willing to come to the rescue, and the result was the most successful enterprise and partnership ever, also known as NAFTA. The challenge then would be how to start all over again.
0: Thank you very much, Luis, for this analysis. Let me now turn to Luis de la Calle. Luis, the other Luis just explained how AMLO's political ambitions, successful consolidation of power, and the advancement of a project that aims to take us back to a bygone area, has in fact succeeded in dismantling key institutions that allowed Mexico to attract investments and that AMLO's project has not translated into greater development, job growth, or higher incomes. He's in fact cutting away at the unique opportunity of positioning Mexico as a viable alternative to nearshoring. From an economic perspective, what has been the hallmark of the López Obrador administration and why is it important?
2: Well, thank you, Mariana, for the the question, and glad to be with you all to discuss the uh, first three and the last three years of uh, the López Obrador administration. Following up Luis's argument, I think the main problem with President López Obrador' economic policy is that he underestimates the complexity of the Mexican economy, and he has this view that is rather simple, that the locomotive of the Mexican economy can be the energy sector, particularly hydrocarbons. That comes from his view from Tabasco and uh, the relative strength of Pemex back in the 1970s and 80s, and where they thought that Pemex could be successful enough, not only to pull the rest of the Mexican economy, but also to give government enough resources to fund social programs and infrastructure growth and everything else. Well, I mean, today's situation is quite different. Even if Pemex was successful, I mean, it's not. I mean, it's actually a big burden for the Mexican government. But even if it was very successful and pumping a lot of oil and making a lot of money, it would be too small to really impact the prospects for the Mexican economy. So the fact that the López Obrador is trying to ignore the level of complexity of the Mexican economy makes it more difficult for Mexico to become attractive in terms of investment. And the main problem we have, and this is not new, is that in Mexico, we don't invest enough to have sustained rates of growth. And investment began to fall in 2016 with the so-called fiscal consolidation that was carried out by then-Secretary of the Treasury, Jose Antonio Meade. They cut capex on public infrastructure, and uh, and that led to lower private sector investment flows. And we have not recovered from that. I mean, that was deepened significantly when President-elect López Obrador canceled the Mexico City airport. That was a political statement with high economic cost. And then in 2019, we had declining investment levels of course, in 2020, because of the uh, COVID, went much further south and aggravated the, the lack of investment that we had in Mexico. So the, the main problem the Mexican economy has is lack of growth. But lack of growth is related to scant investment. So the question is whether we might be able to create an environment conducive for more investment. And the hallmark of the López administration has been not investing. I mean, he has in one of his letters on morality of economics, he said that the state cannot be a promoter because that's not proper for the state to do. And And I think that is the main mistake he's made because no president in recent history has depended more on the success of the private sector in terms of funding for his own projects, because Pemex is less and less a source of revenue for the government. So that is the main problem we have, and I think the hallmark of the first three years of the economic policy of Observador you can make the case, and it will be true, that COVID implied, of course, a significant drop in economic activity, that most countries fared similarly in terms of drops in GDP, drops in economic activity, etc. and that Mexico, in the end, did as bad as others. It's, of course, very true that that is the case. You can argue as to whether a countercyclical program was enough or not or all that. But the question is, whether Mexico is performing economically less than it could. The main cost we've had so far in the first three years of the administration is an opportunity cost. And the opportunity cost of not taking advantage of the new configuration of the global economy is very significant. And uh, it should not be minimized because there is no counterfactual, but Mexico could be a lot better if we had the right economic policies that at this juncture we don't.
0: Luis, how do you see the next three years?
2: Well, I mean, you could argue that the first three years were the more difficult for Salvador because we had COVID and we have a big recession in 2020. My sense is, though, that the next three years will be economically more complicated for him. Not because we were going to have a slump of minus 8% as we did in 2020, but because in the first three years, he benefited enormously from Jerome Paolo and the excess liquidity coming from the U.S. federal Reserve system. López Obrador pays significant attention to the exchange rate, and he convinced himself in his first three years that he could do things that people were telling him were too radical for markets to accept. And markets did not react negatively to those, including the cancellation of Mexico City's airport, because there was a change in direction in monetary policy coming from the Fed in December of 2018. But now the situation will be a little more different. We have inflation that is not only not longer transitory, that might be a little longer, a little higher than people were expecting. And there will be a shift in monetary policy in the US. And every time in history where the US monetary policy has shifted, the economies like Mexico have suffered, particularly when there is a, a not clear management of monetary and fiscal policy on our side. So the, the next two years will be challenging because if you consider, for instance, the uh, electric bill that Lourdes will address in a second, the electric bill, different from the cancellation of the Mexico City report, is more damaging to the economy because it implies a 180 degree shift in ideology in terms of implementation of new policies. And it will come in a context where the monetary policy in the UK U.S. will be less accommodating to Mexico's mistakes. That is risk number one. And that risk number one is in the face of very low investment levels. And then the other problem that the president will find is that he will be unable to contain spending and find enough resources in the private sector with low levels of investment to close the budget gap. So Mexico will end up the president of term with higher debt over GDP ratio than they are thinking, with more exposure to financial instability coming from Wall Street, and with a potential risk that inflation might be a little more harder to control than they are thinking now. If that happens, I mean, López Obrador has an obsession with fiscal discipline and uh, with the stable exchange rates because he knows that technocrats overtook the uh, PRI governments when the PRI mismanaged the macroeconomy in Mexico. So his aversion to deficits and instability comes from that fact because he knows that if Mexico loses its stability, technocrats will be back to clean up the mess. And that's something he fears more than anything else. If he doesn't manage the economy well, the economy might be more unstable in 2024 than he would like for electoral reasons in three years.
0: Luis de la Calle just spoke briefly about how this administration has mistakenly bet on Pemex and fossil fuels as an engine for growth and about how his proposed counter reforms will seriously impact Mexico's economic prospects. Lourdes, can you now tell us what have been the energy policies of this administration and why are they already impacting energy security, as well as electricity prices, availability, the environment, and therefore Mexican competitiveness?
3: Thank you very much, Mariana. First, let me begin by saying that the president has a very simplistic view of the energy sector and of the needs of the country. And basically, of course, he was against the 2013 opening of the energy sector to private investment. But he believes and he's convinced that oil has to be the motor of the economy and that it's very simple that you basically make a hole and the oil comes out. And I think what we have seen throughout the past three years is how that lack of understanding of why we had an energy reform in 2013, the challenges that Mexico faces and what the country needs to have energy security have been a landmark of what we've seen in terms of their policy. And what do I mean by this? I mean, you're absolutely right that his emphasis is on strengthening Pemex and CFE, which, by the way, I believe he's not really strengthening them. He's really undermining them. Why? Because he wants to go back to a model in which we have two monopolies that do everything, absolutely everything, from exploration to production to refining to sales of gasoline and diesel to all the supply chain of the uh, electricity sector. This is a model that we had in the 60s and 70s and doesn't work because eventually you reach a point where you cannot supply the country. Now, what has happened is even worse because he's also gone back to a model where Pemex is refining. And so let's recall that one of his major projects is the Dos Bocas refinery, which has been built in Tabasco. But not only that, I mean, he's refining Mexican heavy crude oil and. For each battle, we produce 30% of fuel oil, which is being burned in the plants of CFE. So CFE, the electricity utility, has become, again, an appendix of Pemex. So what we see is this whole oil center view of the energy sector at a point where the energy sector is undergoing a major technological transformation and where the world is requiring us to lower our emissions. So over the past three years... Several things have happened. First one, the cancellation of the oil bids, and that is very terrible for Mexico in terms of oil production. We have seen oil production going down, despite the fact that the contracts that were awarded in the rounds have shown to be very successful. We have had significant discoveries. Second thing that has happened is they have taken away permits from private companies that were building storage for uh, refined products and limiting the sales of fuels. You know, and so limiting competition in the fuels market. But I think his emphasis, what is most visible, is what he's doing in the electricity sector. And what he's doing in the electricity sector is really going against Mexico's competitiveness. Why? Because not only CFE has become an appendix of Pemex and now its fuel policy is responding to what PEMEX's needs, but more importantly, he's blocking the dispatch of clean electricity and much cheaper electricity, which is generated by the private producers. And part of the issue is we have a complexity about different producers, generators that came into the Mexican market at different stages, but basically the most competitive ones are the ones that came out of the auctions, the clean energy auctions of the energy reform. And here what has happened is that he has first tried to undermine it through a decree that the Supreme Court overturned, then by a law, which is also under injunction by the courts. But now he has presented a constitutional reform of the energy sector, which is a major overhaul, not only of the electricity sector, but of the whole energy sector. He's trying to nationalize the energy sector, the mining sector, and take on state control of what he calls the energy transition, which is basically the whole supply chain from research and development up to who produces solar panels, for instance, and what type of solar panels we can use in Mexico. So basically, the outcome of this strategy is that Mexico will not have energy security. The president talks about energy sovereignty, and it's basically the search of being autarkic. We will not have that. Electricity prices will rise, and we are already seeing that electricity prices will go up just because CFE generates at three to seven times higher prices than the private companies, Moreover, emissions are going up, and this is something that we can already see, not only in terms of CO2 emissions, but also sulfuric dioxide and NOx are going up, which are, of course, affecting the health of people in Mexico. So we are having electricity that is produced with fuel oil, with coal, instead of the renewable potential that Mexico has higher emissions. We have already companies like General Motors that has signaled that they would leave Mexico if they cannot have a supply of clean and cheap electricity.
0: Lourdes, this is not a very pretty scenario, but what do you expect in the next half of his administration?
3: It's a very good question to think about the future because the first issue is to see what will happen with this electricity initiative that is before Congress, which, as I said, is not only an electricity bill, it's really a control of the Mexican economy. And I would say if approved in its terms would grant government control over politics or everything because they will be able to switch off electricity and Internet. So the discussion is underway, and what we have seen already is that he doesn't have the full support of the opposition, even if the PRI seems to be divided over it. But even within Morena, there are discussions about ways to improve or to change this initiative. So the big thing is what will come out of this negotiation. We already know that the private sector is sitting down with the government to negotiate what they can accept and what they cannot accept it's very likely that issues like self-supply will end, that they would look at ways of maybe some of the companies selling their plants to CFE. CFE really wants to take full control of this. And I think we're going to see a battle over the next few months. And the outcome of it will really be very important for the country in a political and economic terms. In economic terms, because the more that CFE gets its way, the less likely it is that we will have rightly available clean and cheap electricity. We are seeing a very significant underinvestment in transmission and distribution of electricity lines, which are on the hands of CFE. All the emphasis is on generation, but we are not developing the infrastructure that we need in the electricity sector. Neither are we developing that infrastructure in the hydrocarbon sector. So. In the best case scenario, we will keep the electricity market and we will keep a situation where there is room for private participation, you know, and maybe in the future we can improve it. The problem is that regulators have already been captured. The president has already announced the disappearance of the National Institute for Climate Change, for instance. All the environmental institutions are being dismantled, including ASEA. Mexico has greater risks of having accidents in the hydrocarbon sector like the ones we've saw this year. This year, we had at least four or five significant accidents, including the IO fire in the Gulf of Mexico. So we are likely to see more of this. And if the president gets his way, what we will see is a severe impoverishment of Mexico because no company would want to come to invest in a country where the electricity that they are supplying is not only expensive, you have shortages, but on top of it, it is high in emissions.
0: Let us now move this conversation from energy insecurity to public security. Jorge Tello, high drug and crime-related violence has either escalated or not, or not changed much in the last three years. However, reports show that criminal groups are claiming more and more territory, their activities seem to be reaching deeper into the country's institutions, and it appears like cartels have taken advantage of the refusal of the López Obrador administration to get tough on crime. Jorge, what is the public security strategy and what has changed in the last three
4: years? Thank you very much for your invitation, Marina. I'm very glad to be here with all my friends.
0: A pleasure to be with you.
4: Let me say something because you started saying that the violence keep climbing and it is true if uh, President López Obrador were here with the claim and perhaps he could be right to say things have not got worse. The numbers of violence and crime statistics have been pretty flat in the last three years. It is true. When the problem is saying that he could say things have not changed very much. Well, perhaps that's part of the problem. Let's say to me The main difference with these last three years have been the lack of any strategy. And I think that it comes from the lack of conscience and knowledge of the complexity of the problem. It sounds familiar after what I hear from both Luises and and Lourdes. And the thing here is uh, that if I am pretty sure that everything is due to the poverty and that's the cause of all of our problems, so we have to focus on that. And then if you look at the national strategy against crime, it looks pretty much social, a economic strategy and not a security strategy. I think that's the problem where it comes from, because then you turn over to the military, and that's the most important change in the federal policy, is the militaries. If the military is the responsible for the public security, Then you have to talk about that as the main important change in the last three years. They are in charge now. The point is that everybody knows, not in Mexico, but around the world, that the military serve for different problems. And that's not what the law enforcement and police forces do. That's not what they are meant to be. They are pretty ineffective. At the end of the last administration, we said that we have around 35 federal police officers. Now we have added to those over 65,000. They are around, they said, 100,000 officers devoted to this national effort in the National Guard. And this new institution that we have been working and shaping up in the last three years, but the, the figures are just flat. And that's to be a very good way to look at it. You have to add to that, of course, the Navy and the military itself, and the Defense Department and the Army, devoted to the same task. And things don't seem to change. I mean, I'm really very, very, very much concerned about what it makes when you are so much concerned about freedom, but then that turns to you into anarchy. And what we are looking here, and this is the most concerning thing, is that when you come to think about public security and crime, and you have to be aware that if you don't contain that in the social levels, undoubtedly it's going to grow up in the economic levels and into the political levels. And that's what we have been seeing in the last three years. The crime is in the economic chains, and now if you ask any business all around the country, in the mountains, in the Sierra, in Guerrero, or in Mexico City, in Monterrey, in Guadalajara. If you have a small or a large business, they said we do have problems because they are getting involved very seriously in business. They are being part of business. To buy some food in Guerrero, you have to get it from their chains. If you want to get a Coca-Cola in Guerrero, there is no way you can get it from the company. You have to get it through them. And that's in the economy itself. And that, sooner or later, is going to affect the whole economic change. And it's getting worse because it is getting to the political levels. To me, you can see the analysis, and Luis already talked about politics, but how crime is interfering in the political processes. And I'm not referring only in what is happening in Guerrero or in Michoacán, that they say they actually were pushing the people in election day, but I'm very close to believe that they have something to do in the elections in the last year, in this year elections in all the Pacific coast. And that goes from Californians and uh, Sonora and Sinaloa. And that's pretty tricky because if you think, and I think somebody does, that you can get the crime involved in the political process and then just get rid of them, I think you have to be aware of how these things work. The point here is then, Our house is on fire, and you may think that you have to go and work on the causes in the beginning and the education and the wealth of the people, and that's not the way it works. I think that's the most important difference from the beginning of this administration and what we are living and what we have today.
0: Jorge, another question. How do you envision the next three years, and how do you think this can impact the United
4: States? Well, I think things are not going to be any better before it gets worse. Why? Well, because, like you said, crime is taking control of some areas. Of course, this is territorial dispute. That's what we are looking at when you see these high numbers in Zacatecas or in Guanajuato. It's not because the criminality has grown. They even say that they will take care of the public safety. And that's the problem. They are fighting for territorial control. Perhaps I am afraid that there is some difference the way the government treats one and another cartel, and that's not good news either. I mean, if things uh, get more tough for the the Jalisco Nueva Generacion in Jalisco and in Guerrero and Familia Michoacana, for instance, those cartels that are working in the south part of the country, we get the feeling that there is some agreement with the San Rafael cartel. Of course, we are just talking, but that's what we see as the result of some behavior of the government. So what I think we'll see in the future, more self-defense response from society. And that is, of course, in the local communities, in rural areas. But the, the same thing with big companies in urban areas, when they have to see their own response because they feel we are all by ourselves and we have to defend what we do for them. If that is going to happen, that's very close, because of course you have to think that an organized crime also can get involved into this legitimization process of getting involved in the self-defense forces. And then it's very easy to have civil war scenarios in some areas. and to serious, and I know what I'm saying, and I think it's not a very nice scenario. Things can get better some places, I think they can. Mexico is uh, always many Mexicos. And what is going on in Guerrero is quite different from what we got in Coahuila or in Nuevo León. It's the society, it's community, and we have to be clear that the, the regional situations in Mexico quite differ from one another What's going in Baja or in Yucatan. I think if local governments get involved and we understand, and that's one of the other differences, that we, more than ever, we think that the solution depends on the federal government, and we just lose sight of the governors of the municipality authorities. And we have so much to do there. And it can be done, and we have shown it before in Nuevo León, in La Laguna, in Torreón, in Ciudad Juárez, that it can be done if the local government gets involved and gets the responsibility. And that's something that the federal government has to push on and to improve. And perhaps that's one of the solutions that we might see in some areas of the country if we want to look for some good news and some good scenarios.
0: As Jorge said, AMLO is relying on the military for much of his agenda. And he has threatened to curb security cooperation with Washington. Some other actions mentioned by the other panelists are in fact in breach of USMCA and other international commitments. So let me now turn the conversation to the United States. Julian, how is the U.S. government dealing with events occurring in its southern border? And how can you summarize the U.S.-Mexico relationship of the last three years?
5: As we look back on the last three years, I would first characterize the relationship in three ways. First, as one of broad continuity on trade, security, and uh, more controversially on immigration, a budding convergence around issues that are important to both governments. And I would highlight development cooperation in Central America, investment, the Northern Triangle as an example, and one in which there is, at least for now, less public emphasis by Washington on areas of concern, such as the ones that have been raised here by the panel but also those stemming from Mexico's approach to certain aspects of its Latin American agenda. On trade, we saw the incoming López Obrador administration even before coming into office, taking ownership of what had been negotiated by the outgoing team. It made tweaks in the endgame of the negotiation, but once in power, it basically invested political capital to make sure that the agreement was ratified by the U.S. Senate. We've entered the second year of the agreement, The three countries are following up on implementation. And of course, controversies, differences related to rules of origin on vehicles and the fiscal incentives for the electric vehicles in the Build Back Better Act are the main and most worrisome bones of contention right now in the trade relationship. Cooperation was severely threatened in October of last year with the arrest of General Cienfuegos, the former Secretary of Defense. In Los Angeles, it resulted even in the temporary suspension of a DEA agent accreditation here in Mexico. But after high-level meetings and a rebranding of previous cooperation schemes, we have seen at least in terms of a narrative, a renewed political commitment to revitalized bilateral dialogue on, on security. The third one is immigration. It's one of the most intractable issues in the agenda and a tragic public policy failure by successive Mexican administrations and U.S. administrations. Early on in its term, you know that under the threat of tariffs by the Trump administration, Mexico decided to cooperate with Washington on the controversial Remain in Mexico policy for asylum seekers at a significant human rights and political cost. This program was not expected to continue under President Biden, but the U.S. court system gave it a longer shelf life. And now, Under the Biden administration, both governments are cooperating with some changes in terms of the scope of eligibility and financing, but still with significant humanitarian and human rights concerns on both ends. And on the non-enforcement side, we've seen them trying to speak from the same page on investment and development cooperation in Central America, the first international trip by Vice President Biden was to Mexico on the Northern Triangle. A Mexican CEO, Blanca Trevino, co-chairs with the CEO of MasterCard, the U.S. Initiative on Generating Private Sector Investment. And most recently, the U.S. announced that it was going to develop a program that is in a sense is complementary to Lopez Obrador's signature short-term employment programs for youth and agricultural workers, the scope of which and the nature of which we still don't know much about. There's an effort to be seen as speaking from the same page on those issues. And the last issue of convergence is, of course, the reactivation of bilateral and North American mechanisms uh, that were frozen during the Trump administration. You know that I'm a, a true believer in the North American idea. Not only Mexico matters, but North America matters. So it was important the North American Leaders Summit started to meet again There are key issues there that are going to be important strategically as we head to the second part of the administration, pandemic preparedness, lack of synchronization on border policies, had a tremendous economic cost during the pandemic and also to border communities in the three countries, and of course, all the supply chain and nearshoring related issues. Where have we seen the most daylight in policy positions beyond Of course, security and energy, electricity, which has been raised here, and the kind of red lights that we're seeing on the economy. It's Mexico's approach to certain critical aspects of the Latin American agenda. Mexico withdrew from the Lima Group on Venezuela. It didn't join the European Union initiative along the same lines. It took the chairmanship of the Latin American and Caribbean Leaders Summit hosting the summit last August or September with the Cuban and Venezuelan presidents here in Mexico City, a more friction relationship in the OAS, particularly with its secretary general. So we have seen big changes there. But in terms of impact, we have also seen this very low public profile from the United States, maybe some raised eyebrows in the White House, maybe some discreet comments. But clearly, there is a decision to privilege the longer term or broader strategic interests in the agenda of Mexico. All these are flashpoints as we head forward, and the way that the US and Mexico approach them will be determined precisely by what has been mentioned by my colleagues here in the panel.
0: Julian, some people believe that our relationship with the United States has come down to a simple political exchange. That is, as long as Mexico assists in stemming migration to the north, The United States is willing to turn a blind eye on many other issues that were mentioned in this panel. Do you think the United States has any leverage? You mentioned during the Trump administration that they threatened to impose tariffs and we were able to cooperate. Is there any leverage that the United States could use to try to put Mexico back into a more open market, democracy and institutional building path?
5: I mean, the relationship is very complex and it's recovering from a very, very difficult period during the Trump administration, which was functional in many ways for President López Obrador. But broader interests are at play. I think we're dealing with a very transactional Mexican administration. And also the Biden administration has a lot on its geopolitical and domestic plate. Its radar screen is very, very crowded. If you look ahead at the next three years, what's going to happen is a very short window of opportunity. The midterms in the U.S. are looming. The outlook does not look at this moment very good for the Biden administration. So the clock is ticking to get various priority issues on the table and moving forward. And that's also going to be the case as the presidential succession politics take over in Mexico's own radar screen. So depending on what happens in the midterm elections, we could see changes in relevant committees in the U.S. Congress, a more critical view on Mexican positions, not only on regional issues, but on global issues, maybe climate change, the electricity reform, if it goes forward. But there's a clear strategic decision right now in the sense that there are political limitations on both sides. And how they are approached, or if this kind of narrow broadband that we see right now in the agenda is broadened in a sense, it will depend on, as Luis mentioned, whether the security situation would go significantly south, what happens in substantive public policy changes as we move forward. The immigration issue is going to heat up metaphorically because of the U.S. elections next year but also in a very real way as we head into the spring and summer. It's not an issue that is going to go away. It's going to be an electoral issue. And that is going to narrow the options for broader engagement in a negative or positive way between Mexico and the United States for the next few years.
0: As we have heard from our guests, the last three years were marked primarily by the consolidation of power by the president, the dismantling of key institutions, and a huge opportunity cost of not positioning Mexico as a viable alternative to nearshoring from China. But as we have also heard from our guests, the next three years could require a long and deep cleanup in a world in which the US administration is focused on internal issues, as well as on a series of other international challenges ranging from Russian troops in Ukraine to Afghanistan to a geopolitical and technological supremacy competition with China, that it might be understandable for the U.S. government to assume that things will eventually get better on their own in its southern border. But unfortunately, if the political, security, economic, and energy environments deteriorate in Mexico, as much as our guests described, that increased migration flows could become the least of our mutual problems. My name is Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you very much to our guests.
4: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts.